Hello everyone and welcome along to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. Throughout this series we aim to bring you voices from all across Ireland and today we will continue that conversation in Dublin. Our guest today is a former university lecturer. He's been a senator since 1987, which also makes him the longest serving senator to date. He was the first openly gay person to be elected to public office in Ireland. He's a member of the Church of Ireland. It gives me great pleasure to welcome along David Norris. Welcome, David. Good morning and welcome to you, indeed. Thank you very much, David, for inviting us into your, may I say, beautiful house <laughs> this morning. And um, I appreciate you're a busy man, so um, your time today is very much appreciated. So, David Patrick Bernard Norris. Fitzpatrick Norris. Fitzpatrick oh, Norris. My mother included her family name Very in good. both my brother and myself. Yeah. You were born on the 31st of July, 1944. David, would you mind maybe telling us for the people that maybe don't know you as well, which I don't believe there'll be that many right enough, a little bit about your early years growing up and what, I suppose, helped shape your thinking? Well, the curious thing, of course, is that I was born on the equator. So I believe. Uh, in what was then the Belgian Congo. Um, my father had been a kind of professional war hero. Uh, he got the Marine VC in the First World War and a knighthood in the second. Uh-huh. Um, whereas uh, I, on the other hand, am an SRC, a state registered coward. I wouldn't fight for anybody. <laughs> um, and he uh, got a lot of money for bringing in battleships uh, from Lloyd's, uh, the insurance agents. Uh, and he invested in a small company that he designed and built, um, installed uh, silent hydraulic lifts in the big hotels in London. When busted in 1929, his sister had married an Irishman with a lot of property called Agnew Montgomery Martin, had property in the West, in Dublin, in London, Brighton, and my father came over for a tennis weekend tennis party. Okay. And met my mother, swept her off her feet, and <laughs> yanked her from the bogs of Leash straight to Central <laughs> Africa, stopping only to get married in St Anne's Church in Dawson at eight o'clock in the morning. Very good. Yeah, so that that was the beginning. And of course I don't remember it at all. Yeah. But my mother used to describe the clinic around Elizabeth where I was born as a long, low, white building. Uh, full of nurses in starched uniforms. And I used to think, well, I remember that. And then one day I was sitting on the 18 bus and I looked across the road at what was then in Ballsbridge, it's gone now, the Irish Sweepstakes office, which was a long, low white building with a cardboard cut out of a nurse in a starched uniform in front of it. And I thought I was born in the Sweepstakes office. Yes. Very good, very good. So, so what... then we came back and I spent a year in my grandfather's house in County Leash and then my father bought a house in Balls Bridge. He was going to buy a house in Aylesbury Road but uh, he was an engineer among other things and he thought that the arrangements for damp proofing weren't quite up to scratch. So he bought a very nice, big, modern 1930s house in uh-huh. Balls Bridge. Uh-huh. Mm. What kind of helped... Uh, shape your, I suppose, political thinking throughout your early years and leading into your teenage years? Well, I didn't have any political thinking. You didn't have any? No, I didn't have any, because I wasn't a real person. Gay people were not real. And had you a we sense were... of that? Like you of course really I had. had. You felt as if you had no identity, is that correct? Absolutely, or... 100%. I was just invisible. It was like somebody going up inside a glass tube and you could see the other people outside, but you couldn't reach them. And you couldn't, you could, they couldn't hear you. And, and, uh, because, and this came all from the churches. 
because they described homosexuality as uh, crimen illot horribile non nominandum inter Christianos. That crime so horrible that it must not be mentioned among Christians. And so it wasn't. I mean, when I was young, there wasn't a single mention of homosexuality in the media, in the newspapers, the radio, the television. There wasn't television anyway. Tell me this, uh, David. When did you first become aware that you were gay? Well, I knew I always liked men. I mean, even since I was tiny. Um, but it only it became sexualized, I suppose, about 11, 12. 11. Um, and, and did your parents get a sense of this? or? Well, my father was dead. Right, okay. Sorry, <laughs> and my mother was a wonderful person, but she was quite vague. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember her telling her that I was gay. She said, oh, that's lovely. And she went on pruning the roses. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, were... So people didn't know. Yeah. There was absolutely nothing. And you'll find people of my generation. I'm 75 now. Mm -hmm. People of my generation all had the same idea that they were monsters and they were the only ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so we grew up in isolation and shame, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is a terrible thing to do of to people. Of course terrible. it is. Of course it is. And I suppose we'll maybe touch on that later on. Yeah. You've successfully spearheaded a number of successful campaigns, David, yeah. aimed at improving LGBT rights in the South. Can you tell me how you felt the day the same-sex marriage referendum passed, at which was the 34th Amendment to the Constitution? Well, I was elated. I was in the crowd in Dublin Castle, uh, and it was a wonderful, lovely, lovely feeling. Uh, but the person who should have got the credit for it didn't. And who was that? And all these people from Sinn Féin and all this were jumping up on the lorry and blah, 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 and panty and whatnot. But they had basically very little to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was Eamon Gilmore for oh. the Labour Party. Yeah. Eamon Gilmore put it on the political agenda and made sure it was kept there. And the people from Yes Equality, mm -hmm. they did a wonderful campaign. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't frighten people. They just knocked on people's doors and said, I'm voting yes. Mm -hmm. Would you like to, me to tell you why? Mm -hmm. You know, it's very gentle and lovely. Yeah. And that made an enormous difference to the whole position of gay people in Ireland mm -hmm. uh, because it meant people's neighbours, their relatives, were popping up all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Like spring, like all the snowdrops. Did it give spring. you like a, a new sense of being, a new sense of belonging in this country? Well, not a hundred percent, because I always knew I belonged. You yeah. know, my, my mother's family have been here for two thousand years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, so I belong pretty well. You know, um, despite my accent, which has been commented upon a great deal, including. Uh, many years ago, discussion on the the, the gay burn show, and they uh -huh. said they decided eventually it was a Protestant accent. Oh. Uh, despite my accent, I'm descended from one high king, six kings of Leinster, and umpteen kings of Ossory. <laughs> Gaelic ones, I may say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of the fact that I have a Roman Catholic bishop during the penal period in my family tree. His mother was one of the Fitzpatricks of Ossory. Uh, his parents died when he was one. On their deathbed, they begged that he be brought up Roman Catholic. Uh -huh. He was adopted by my ancestors, who were relatives, and they defied the penal laws and brought him up Roman Catholic, sent him to Paris to become a priest. He became a bishop, and he founded the Brigidine nuns and the Patrician Brothers. Oh, very good. Mm. Very good. And my grandfather had his rosary beads, and they went to two old cousins in Marlborough. And when they died, I rang down to cousin who was cleaning the house out, and I said, look out for Bishop Lenny's rosary beads. Oh, she said, never heard of that. I described them to her, and she said, 
Oh, those old things. I thought they were a skivvy's necklace. I shoved them in the bin. They went out on Thursday. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a shame. <laughs> well, I think it's rather funny. <laughs> well, and we still have the story, which is the crucial thing. I suppose the story is the yeah. crucial thing to anything. David, the denial of these same rights to in the north of the island is obviously a big talking point these days. And among others are a big part of the current Stormont negotiations yes. that's going on. Um, what would you say to the DUP and what advice would you have for LGBT rights groups and politicians who are campaigning for the same rights? Well, I'd say to the DUP, congratulations on having a lesbian elected in the local elections. Absolutely. Well, that's you know, right. well done. That's it right. just shows that when it comes to vote, you're just totally corrupt. Yeah. You know, give a damn about what people are. You know, it's all utter total hypocrisy. But that's what you find with an awful lot of Bible thumpers. Yeah. You know, they disgust me. Yeah. I have to say, uh, the extreme elements, and there's a hell of a lot of them, they're not a minority in the North, the extreme elements disgust me. And they make me embarrassed about being a member of the Church of Ireland because people in the South lump all the prawns together and they think we're the same and yeah. we're not at all. Yeah, 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 no. yeah. Um, I, I suppose, you know... I don't know what advice I'd give to the people. I mean, just to keep campaigning and uh, to try to get to talk to people and confront them, yeah. confront them with their idiocy. I suppose from, from our point of view, in 2019, where you have got one part of the island of Ireland has, are, is an open, liberal, multicultural yes. society. And literally, a few miles up the road, we're nearly like living in the dark ages. Well, I think part of that is because of the rather sad collapse of the Roman Catholic Church. But that has meant that the ecclesiastical influence down here has diminished, which I think is a very good thing. That hasn't happened in the north. Uh, the bigots still control an awful lot in mm. the north. Yeah. And that is uh, a pity. But I have to say, I used to laugh at the Reverend Ian Paisley and his Save Ulster from Sodomy campaign <laughs> and his celebration of King William. Did he not know that <laughs> King William was one of the biggest sodomites ever? Yeah, it's true. It is true. Yeah. yeah. What, what it wasn't only his white horse he rode. <laughs> Oh my God, very good, very good. What, what do you think is required? Is it a change of mindset in people? I think it is, yes, I think it is. And you see, it was understandable that people could be very anti-gay in a situation they were terrified by the church and the state yeah. uh, into thinking gay people were evil and they were child molesters and all, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and they didn't know anybody. You know, when the bank manager or their Uncle Fred or their Aunt Julie turns out to be gay and they're non-threatening. Yeah. And that makes a huge difference. So, I mean, one can understand what, uh, the fear and confusion that there was. But I think that's gone up. I mean, I remember writing to Artie or talking to them uh, and saying that they should put a gay character in one of their soaps. They nearly died for oh, laughter. Very good, yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, there was, there was no reflection yeah. in anything. Now, I, I gather couple of the fellows in one of the soaps kissed each other. Well, that's a beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen that, but in, in most TV programs nowadays, it's just representation of normal life. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that's it, yeah. yeah. What, tell me, that's just something came into my head there. What did you make or had you any view on the Pope's visit here last year? Well, I like the Pope. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think he's very good. He's refreshing. 
he's a breath of common sense. I mean, he's not 100% on gay rights and women and all no. this kind of stuff, but he's a 70-something or 80-year-old uh, Latin American male, you know, so what do you expect? But, I mean, what I like about him is he's non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. You know, when somebody on this plane asked, uh, wanted him to condemn gay people, he said, who am I to judge? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a good... That's a good uh, answer. Compared to yeah. the two ghastly freaks that went before him, uh, that appalling Pope uh, from Poland, uh, John the Twenty Third, who was so vicious in his condemnation, the language he used was unspeakable uh, to condemn gay people. Uh, his brutal uh, extermination of any dissenting voices. The greatest spirits of the Roman Catholic Church were marginalised and silenced and exiled under that man and his henchman, the disgusting uh, ex-Nazi uh, Benedict. Yeah, yeah. who should have gone down on his knees in shame. But when he went to Auschwitz, um, um, he mentioned all the groups with the single exception of the gay people. Yeah. An absolutely disgusting person. And all the way he walks, <laughs> I wouldn't be too sure of him either. <laughs> okay, Little okay. mincing thing. In 1988, you effectively took Ireland to the European Court of Human Rights to try and overturn the law against same-sex sexual activity, and you won it. Can you tell me a little bit about Irish society at that particular time and the laws that were in place, and how did it feel like to get your victory in the European courts? Well, the, the laws were the um, uh, Offences Against the Person Act, of, I think, eight, revised in 1886, or in 76, I can't remember which, um, and they were a continuation of the legislation that had been introduced by Henry VIII uh-huh. uh, when he took over the ecclesiastical courts. It was originally the ecclesiastical courts that dealt with uh, the crimes of buggery and sodomy, as they were called. Um, uh, and the 1886 Act reduced the penalty from death uh, to life imprisonment. That was bigger than wasn't it? Oh, wasn't it wonderful? Yes, <laughs> but at least it was a change in the right direction. Yeah. But the most sinister was the Labouchere Amendment of 1885, uh, which criminalised gross indecency between males, um, and uh, it didn't define gross indecency. So it led to ludicrous and sometimes tragic things. Where, for example, two RAF airmen in the 1950s were. Uh, convicted for looking lewdly at each other in a pub. You know, it was this kind of ridiculous nonsense that went on. Um, uh, the, the laws didn't extend to Ireland for about 100 years uh, for some technical reason. I can't remember. I think it was because they weren't wearing their hats when the, when the law went through. Something as absurd as that. The Irish peers weren't wearing their hats. Um, that's <laughs> nearly unbelievable. It is, yes. Well, maybe it's not true. <laughs> yeah, well, Some unbelievable things are unbelievable <laughs> yeah, for good true. reason. Uh, but that's right, I read that somewhere. But in any case, uh, that remained the case uh, until a uh, uh, hundred years later when a Church of Ireland bishop, John Atherton from Waterford, um, spotted the gap in the law and decided... Uh, to advance his political career by mounting a kind of Save Ireland from Sodomy campaign. Okay. And he was successful. Uh-huh. 
But unfortunately, he'd overlooked the fact that he was a fairy himself. Uh-huh. And he was the first person to be arrested. He was tried. He was convicted. Uh, he was dragged through Dublin Pass Christchurch Cathedral. And he was hung in Smithfield. Honestly. Hung. Yeah. So he right. was the first person to be hanged. Right. Served some bloody well right. So what was it a long journey when you were effectively taking the state to yeah, the Yeah, well, Port? first of all, I, 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 uh, 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 the preparatory ground was that I, I sued them in the High Court. Uh-huh. Um, and the thing I added in there was witnesses. I insisted on witnesses. Uh-huh. We had Professor Spiegel, the head of the American Psychiatric Association at the time, and they declassified it as a disease. Um, uh, Rose Robertson... Um, all kinds of internationally known people. Uh-huh. And that blasted onto the front page of the newspapers every day. Yeah. And that was very important. I mean, that ended the silence because there was absolute silence up to that point. That's and right. then, bang, yeah. this case hit the papers. Yeah. yeah. So that was very important. Uh, and we got an interesting judgment from the judge. Uh, he said that um, there were a surprisingly large number of people who were gay. Uh, that they weren't less intelligent, they weren't childless, they weren't this, that, the other, and so on. And then at the end of it, he said, nevertheless, despite this, because of the Christian and democratic nature of the Constitution, I have to find against the plaintiff. Mm -hmm. And that led to the Supreme Court, where there were five judges, and three of them were an absolute disgrace. Uh, the, The Chief Justice misdirected himself in law, because all you're supposed to do in the Supreme Court is to discuss legal implications from the evidence presented in the first case. Uh-huh. Oh, he wandered out all over the place giving yeah. his religious beliefs uh-huh. and his medical beliefs and all kind of nonsense for which he was completely unqualified. The man was an idiot. Yeah. Um, and two other judges disgracefully signed his judgment without giving any reason. Mm-hmm. Because there was no reason. Yeah. But there were two dissenting judgments, um, Henshi and McCarthy, and they were very interesting. They were good. Uh, so that opened the way for us to go to Europe. And we won in Europe by one vote. The Irish judge, who was an other coward and a pest and a bully, Walsh, voting against us, as he had already done in the Dudgeon case. You see, there had been a previous case, uh, Jeff Dudgeon, but my case was carefully planned and politically motivated. Uh, Jeff was caught in a, a, a drug sting. They found a marijuana joint or something. And they went through all his papers and they, they found a diary where he details of assignations with other men and so on. And they started to prosecute. So he went straight to the European court. He yeah. bypassed all the local processes. Whereas I wanted to use the local process and I wanted to be as long as possible. Of course. And I wanted... Or to be full in the, of the newspaper to make headlines. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Make yeah. it mainstream, normal yeah, exactly. conversation. Yeah, exactly. What tell me this? What sort of support or backing do you get privately and publicly from politicians and people? That Bloody little. I mean, the only one who supported me uh, was uh, uh, the late Noel Brown. Okay, right. Who'd been minister for health? Mervyn Taylor, actually, but I think that was later. A very decent man, Mervyn Taylor, um, a Jewish man. He was um, uh, Minister for Justice here and terribly, terribly nice, lovely family. Um, uh, he was supportive too. But I mean, I remember writing to all the, the TDs and so on, uh, asking them whether they agree with the change of law. And one very amusing one I got back from somebody who's still alive, actually, who uh, said, yes, he would agree to a change of the law 
he'd bring back the death penalty. <laughs> <laughs> Not the sort of news you want to hear. Well, I quite enjoyed it, actually. <laughs> I thought it was all funny. <laughs> Following the repeal of the law in 1993, David, you are on record as saying the mechanism of discrimination was exactly the same against women, against ethnic minorities and against the handicapped. Can you maybe elaborate on, you know, your work on achieving equal rights for all citizens, regardless of what category they may be put under? Yes, well, I mean, I think most of us, certainly I, started out on quite a selfish uh, Certainly, course. that was your motivation. Yeah, because it, it, the law impinged on me uh-huh. and damaged me. Correct. And... Um, uh, I wanted to get rid of it for that reason. Uh, but I, very quickly I started to see that it's exactly the same process, it's exactly the same um, mechanism of prejudice that operates against women, against black people, against Jewish people, against all this sort of, against Islamic people, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and um, so I, I, that led to an in, uh, a substantial interest in human rights uh, organizations, uh, human rights situations. Uh, all over the world. I mean, I've been very active, for example, for many years about uh, the tragic case of Tibet. Uh In fact, I was smuggled into Tibet many, many years ago to write a report on the human rights situation there. It was was horrifying. I mean, even simple things like uh, there was, um, uh, in a very mountainous area, we came across the road had collapsed with a landslide. The notices were all in Chinese. Uh They were not in Tibetan. Yeah. <laughs> no, they obviously didn't give a shit if the if the the Tibetans drove over the precipice. You know, mm. this kind of thing. Uh, the Tibetan language was being suppressed. Uh, the religion was being absolutely destroyed. I mean, ninety percent of the monasteries were were destroyed. Mm-hmm. It was a shocking, shocking, shocking thing. And the Chinese are criminally responsible for this. Colonialism, it's imperialism. Despite all the blather about communism, they are the real colonial imperialists, the Chinese. Uh, and they should be stopped. It's a disgrace uh, to them. Uh, and then there was the, the situation in East Timor, yeah. uh, where a friend of mine was very prominent in it. And uh, I got it discussed and debated in the, in the parliament. The first time I did it, actually, was, I've just remembered, um, Mary Robinson was a very good friend about it, and she asked me to sign a motion in the Senate about East Timor. I'd never heard of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where it was. Yeah. That was my first inkling. So there were, and, and then there was um, uh, there was a whole fate of people in the Amazon region. You know, the people that that, that Roger Casement made such a moving intervention for. You know, he was a very remarkable man. I mean, what he did in the Congo my native land, where the odious uh, um, King Leopold of Belgium, who styled himself the Catholic King, God help us, he was responsible for genocide in the Congo. It was appalling. And Casement exposed it, as did Joseph Conrad in his remarkable novella, uh, Heart of Darkness. How do you feel, just bringing it back to Ireland here, how do you feel that women... Uh, ethnic minorities and the handicapped and I suppose people like that. Do you feel as if that their rights are better served today? And if not, what still has to oh, be done? Oh, there's no question that they're better off. Absolutely none. So in my day, a woman couldn't go abroad without her husband's consent. They couldn't vote. 
Oh, so, sorry, they couldn't vote. They couldn't sit on juries. Yeah. You know, it's astonishing. Yeah. Uh, the when my father died, my mother got nothing. My father was the breadwinner. Yeah. If my mother had died, he'd have got a housekeeper's allowance. Yes. yes. You know, these sort of things. The handicapped. It's amazing. I mean, the number of people uh, who have... Now, sometimes they have to change them and they're uncomfortable or whatever it is, or they're the wrong size or whatever it is. But virtually everybody who needs it has, has a, a, a motorised wheelchair. Yeah. Um, places are accessible now, which were never accessible before. Um, there is still quite a long way to go. And we have John Doran in the Senate, uh, who is John Dolan, who is uh, uh, slightly handicapped himself, and he fights tremendously for the handicapped uh, people. Good, good, good. Uh, David, growing up in Catholic Ireland uh, for most of your life, did you ever feel you were treated differently as a Church of Ireland member? Well, of course we were. <laughs> Can you give me a few examples? Well, I mean, I remember when uh, there used to be the big Corpus Christi yeah. festival. You know, and I mean, it was, in some ways it was lovely and it was colourful. But they would uh, take the Blessed Sacrament out and statues of the Blessed Virgin and flags and banners and there'd be loudspeaker music. You could you'd practically go deaf in our back garden in Paul's Bridge for uh -huh. all this was coming from Lakelands Convent and so on. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a special place of the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the Constitution. Um, and, I mean, the politicians kowtowed in the most disgraceful way. I mean, several uh, Tishig actually said they were Catholic first and Irish second. And they routinely ran legislation, proposed legislation, under the gaze of the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, for his permission. Yeah. This is the kind of place that it was. How, uh, how do you think that whole but thing... I, I, you know, but I have to say, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is often criticised, and, of course, the abuse, the, the sexual abuse... One of the things that happened was that they utter hypocrisy, the way they were giving sermons. I mean, I was read off the altars one Easter, by name. You were? I was, yes. <laughs> what age were you? Oh, I was in my 20s or 30s. I well, don't know. Yeah, right. yeah, you have to tell us this story now. So no, I don't. It. No, it was just, it was just they, they, they kind of mentioned me in their pastoral letters. Yeah. But I didn't care. Damn, I was rather flattered, really. Um, but they... Um, I've forgotten what we we're talking about no, now. No, my next part of that question is, how do you think that... Um, Oh, yes, sorry. Uh, no, state, I'm sorry that it's gone, that it's collapsed so terribly. Yeah. Uh, because I think we forget that at a time when there was very little available for people, the Roman Catholic Church stood by the people and gave them education uh, and gave them sustenance and helped them. But they did not brush a lot of stuff under the carpet. Of course they did. They them. were such liars. They yeah. were so hypocritical. All the Christian churches are. Yeah. Uh, they never, they've never told the truth about human sexuality. Not once. And the idea of them giving sermons, oh dear, when the bishops were off having children outside like wedlock. There's one word springs to mind as hypocrisy. Absolute hypocrisy. And they were I remember being on a television program and I saw it repeated years later and I recognised the fellow because it was this big, fat priest, smug-looking creature on the back row and he was giving it to me 
about homosexuality and all this, absolutely blackguarding me everywhere. He was Father Sean Fortune, the fellow who wrote, raped all the schoolboys in Wexford. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how they. I don't think half those people believed in God. No, they'd have been afraid to do what they did if they did. Yeah. As my aunt used to say, they'd be afraid they'd be struck by lightning. Yeah. Do you think was it the the emergence of all the abuse? Uh, scandals and stuff was that the start of the end for the Catholic Church no it wasn't no Uh, no that was the middle really the the start of the end for the Roman Catholic Church was the introduction of the contraceptive pill ah yes okay and Pope Paul VI convened uh, a panel of experts and they met over many months and they recommended him that he accept it and he thought about it for a minute and a half and then he said, no, mm-hmm. I'm the Pope, and what I say goes, artificial contraception banned. Now, by that stage, people knew a bit more, they were more educated, and they said, well, I'm not having the Pope interfere with my private life. I'll continue to be Roman Catholic, but I am going to, I, I am not going to die of a heart attack from having 17 children just to please the bloody old celibate Pope. So they, their, their behaviour diverged from what their church was teaching them. Yeah. That was the beginning. Yeah. And that also was, had serious impact for gay people because for the first time it acknowledged that there were reasons for sex other than procreation. Procreation, yeah. 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 You could do pleasure, companionship, showing love, love. to people. Yeah. You know? That was never included by the church. Oh no, it was kind of a veterinary thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, looking back now, it, it, it does seem, you know, did it even happen? Like it seems nearly oh, that unbelievable. Yeah. It was like bullying the cow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Tell me this, David. In the event of a New Ireland, or as some people would call it, a border poll, and that vote was successful, speaking from your experiences, do non Catholics have anything to fear from living in? They certainly do, yeah. The invasion of a million bloody prods from the north. <laughs> Isn't that bad enough for you? Not at all. No, I, uh, well, I think, you see, it doesn't, it doesn't really bother me that much. I mean, I, I just despise 1916. Okay. Uh, because they were, they were mostly English. Uh, people like um, <coughs> that... Appalling uh, woman, um, Sean McBride's mother, Maud Gone, uh, who had a drop of Irish blood. She was brought up, she first saw Ireland from the inside of the Curra camp where her father was a colonel in the British Army. Now, Portrick Pierce's father was an English Protestant atheist. James Connolly, for whom I have quite a lot of respect, Scottish. Um, Eamon Kent, that sounds very Irish, until you realise it's actually Edward Kent. You couldn't be more English if you were George Gloucester. Uh, Carl Brewer, the Charlie Burgess, the whole bloody lot of them. We had uh, home rule pass through both houses in 1914. Uh, um, they, they, they shot the British Empire in the back, in the middle of the First World War, and in their bloody old proclamation. Uh, they pledge allegiance to the Kaiser. I don't know if you noticed that. Okay. Our gallant ally in Europe, <laughs> Wilhelm. Oh, yes. What about poor little Catholic Belgium? 
Uh, and what we got out of it was a brutal and bloody civil war and the sectarian partition of the island. Thank you very much, Paul Rick Pierce. And the British were only giving him what he wanted. He wanted to be martyred. Yeah, and he was. Uh, I, I can understand people's revulsion at the executions. They were horrible. They were horrible. But it was treason. There was a penalty for treason, all the rest of it. And I have far more sympathy with the shot at dawn, a lot of whom were young Irish dads of 16, 17, who were traumatised um, and, and suffering from shell shock. And they were shot in the back of the neck because they didn't remove their caps in the presence of an officer. I mean, that kind of unspeakable British um, class justice, disgusting beyond anything. And I campaigned to get them pardoned. Much bloody good it'll do them, for they're dead. But I got it in the end. Tell me this. What is your whole thought on... So, so what I was going to say there was... You're okay. So I, I've never been that bothered about the border. Yeah. You know, I think it's a pity uh, that we didn't stay in. We'd, have, we'd be at this stage anyway yeah. if we'd stayed in. Uh, with but, the British, but, but we might have still had <clears throat> the Queen as head of state, the, and I'm the, a big fan of hers. Uh, so I think we would have got uh, more or less. Worried. But I, I'm not. I'm not that exercised. It looks nice on a stamp. You said you weren't that bothered about the border, but I suppose <clears throat> people that's living depend on around the border. Oh, they, absolutely. They, they are bothered by it. Oh, yes. And their daily lives are mm. affected by it. Absolutely. No, I completely accept that. And the other thing is. I mean, we have uh, Ian Marshall in the Senate now. Correct. He's that, a unionist an absolute, farmer. An absolute gentleman. He's a very nice man indeed. And I said to him the other day, you know you're the best argument I've seen in a long time for United Ireland. Yeah, funny, we did a podcast with Ian a couple of did months you? ago. Did you? Yeah, Good. Did indeed. Yeah, yeah, he's lovely, terrific. Lovely man. Yeah. What, what's your own personal views on it? Do you think the country should be reunified? Or what's your personal take on that? Well, I see more and more reason for it. You know, okay. Brexit is going to help to bring it about, in my opinion. But I think, rather sadly, it's going to lead to the disintegration of the, the United Kingdom. There's no doubt, especially with Scotland. And, yeah. And I even hear Wales rumbling now as well. Well, I'd be surprised at Wales. I wouldn't have thought they had that amount of imagination. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Scotland, I think, the next time... Yeah, and you know why Scotland is doing it? Because the enormous number of Irish Catholics over there, I mean, they're, the, they're behind it. They really are. Well, Nicola Sturgeon might disagree with you. but uh. Well, she's not, but I've met quite a few of them out of the Irish, uh, out of the Scottish Parliament, and lovely people. Yeah, yeah. But there are, they all come and boast about their Irish Catholic background. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And there is still in Ireland that ridiculous antagonism to, to England. Yeah. You know, all this stuff which drives me mad, whether even a rugby match, and they talk about, oh, we'll defeat the old enemy. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's helpful to be thinking in those terms. No, absolutely. You know, and an awful lot of the people who administered the British Empire were Irish. Mm, you know. Ironically enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, General Sheridan, who said the only good uh, Indian is a dead Indian. Uh, Irish, from County Cavan. The fellow who was involved in that dreadful Amritsar massacre in India. Irish. Yes, but of course, for convenience, this is the sins of the British Empire and the English. Oh, it was the Irish who were up to their necks in it. David, the works of Joyce are celebrated. 
and appreciated the length and breadth of the island, but it wasn't always the case. Can you perhaps tell us how and why this change occurred, given that you have been given huge credit, I suppose, and how he is now perceived? Well, yeah, I mean, everything I was involved in, and I didn't do this deliberately, but everything I was involved in was anathema uh-huh. to the Irish people and the establishment. So gay rights, yeah. Georgian architecture, yeah. James Joyce, they were all absolutely hated, yeah. hated, hated, hated. Um, well, I tell you, the, the principal thing with regard to the rehabilitation of James Joyce is money. Okay. I mean, nothing so disinfects a reputation as the tinkle of cash into the till. Isn't that true? Yeah. And, of course, Joyce is very good for tourism and is good for academics and is good for this, that and the other. And, of course, uh, we have Bloomsday, which you've just had, which is a wonderful festival That's that right. celebrates That's Joyce right. and hundreds of thousands of people enjoy it and they dress up and they read little bits and they have a glass of wine. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. You know, it's wonderful to see it. Absolutely wonderful. And how did um, it become a passion of yours? Well, when I was eight, I had a very glamorous uncle who used to wear aftershave, which was almost a criminal offence in the 1960s, <laughs> 50s. I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. And this was one of his, his family rings. Oh, it's very nice. Uh, and um, uh, he travelled abroad a great deal, and he had a travelling library with him, and in it was a copy of Dubliners. So when aged eight, I stole Dubliners, and two of his cigars and retreated up a tree in the garden. Uh-huh. And it seemed to me that Joyce hadn't the slightest idea how to tell a story. Right. Um, there were hopeless uh-huh. stories in Dubliners. Because uh, I had come across Guy de Maupassant, you know, diamond necklace. woman borrows a necklace. It gets lost. She ruins herself replacing it. Meets the woman years later who she borrowed from. And turns out the necklace was only paste. Bang, smack in the kisser, end of story. Joyce's first story ends with the querulous voice of an old woman saying, So then, of course, when they seen that, they realised something had gone wrong with them. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And there isn't even a bloody full stop. Okay. But Joyce is actually doing something very modern. He's forcing the reader to come into the text of the uh-huh, story yeah. and work out what it was yes, that was wrong exactly. with Father Flynn. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then... In my teenage years, there were meetings around Dublin where um, friends and school comrades of Joyce used to turn up. Mm-hmm. And they'd talk about him. And I didn't know, for example, he was very good at critic, okay. cricket. Right. Cricket. Yeah. And, uh, and that's probably why he gives such a wonderful description of cricket in Clongos. You know, he heard the sounds of the fellows uh, at the nets bowling shies and slow twisters and, and, and lobsters and whatnot. Um, pick, pock, 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 pick, pock, pack, pock, uh, like drops of water falling in the brimming bowl. Beautiful, beautiful. catch the sound beautiful. of cricket exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and he was, he was also a very, apparently a very good runner. I didn't know that at all. Okay. Um, and then, about 60 years ago, uh, there was a play put on in the Oblana Theatre. You're probably too young to remember the Oblana Theatre. was in the basement of Bus Aris, next to the gentleman's lavatory. Okay. <laughs> it's right. a small theatre. <laughs> and they put on a play called The Voice of Shem by the late Mary Manning. 
And it was absolutely wonderful. It was a dramatization of Finnegan's Wake. And um, two great act Irish actresses um, uh, performed uh, the two wa washerwomen from Anne Olivia Plura Bell. And it was absolutely the distilled essence of the Dublin that I knew and loved. And I went to the library and got it out. It might as well have been a treatise on trigonometry in Arabic. Yeah. You know, I couldn't follow it at all. And then I discovered that you, you have to read it like music and you have to always to listen to the text in Joyce. Mm -hmm. David, tell me this. What was your experience of being a candidate in the 2011 presidential uh, race? Well, it was, it was kind of very schizophrenic. Okay. On one level, it was absolutely wonderful. Uh -huh. I mean, going around the countryside, seeing... Uh, what people do in difficult circumstances. This was a period of extreme austerity in the country. And I visited places for the handicapped, for the mentally unwell and all this kind of stuff. I saw darned sheets. I never saw dirty sheets. Uh, I saw love and care and exhaustion from the people who made up the hours to make sure that these people were looked after. I visited local country markets. I bought gallons of homemade jams, which were delicious, uh -huh. and cheeses and all this. <laughs> I saw the beauty of the countryside. Yeah. And I was 37% when the next person was 9%. Yes. And I was obviously going to win. Yeah. Uh, and the media then decided, no, you're not. And they mounted a campaign. Every newspaper in the country, with the single exception of, of the Sunday Independent, that single exception, every newspaper, every radio station, every television station broadcast the most filthy and unspeakable lies about me. And I was never let get away from it. I mean, they would promise me on RTE that they would allow me to discuss policy and all this kind of stuff. And I established the parameters of that entire election. The three planks that I chose, mental health and all the rest of it, they were the things that every candidate took up. There wouldn't have been an election only for me because the parties had already decided they were going to agree on a candidate. And I threw my hat in the ring, that buggered all that up. Yeah. Um, but they decided that they would tell these lies. I mean, they said things like that I advocated parents uh, having sex with their own children. You know, unspeakable stuff, that had, the kind of stuff that has never been said about anybody in Irish public life before. I gave up a pension. That I was, do you want a handkerchief? No, I'll get one. And let it go. Can you not? All right. Well, then you just have to sniffle. <laughs> I'm grand. I'm grand. Yeah, it was, it was just barbaric. And my bloody campaign team, with the exception of the manager, with the exception of my secretary, Miriam, who was wonderful, and my marvellous neighbour, Mwern, who was also my barrister, they ran away. They have not told me to this day, not one of them, has actually resigned from my campaign. But I found out that they had through watching the nine o'clock news on RTE television. That was what, what happened. And with no team, I had to withdraw, but I came back in later on. But the good news is that subsequently I took 10 libel actions yes. and I won every single one of them. But you won't find that in the newspapers. Oh, no. The truth in the news. We will expose. The one thing they won't expose is themselves. And they're always bleating about press freedom and all the rest of it. They have their freedom. Tell me that, Stephen. But they should tell the truth. If they tell lies, 
They should pay the price for it. And I have no sympathy whatever for them. It begs the question, why did they do this? Well, there were a number of reasons. One was because I had upset the plans of the editors uh, to rebalance the uh, 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 relative positions of the individual private person and the newspapers on the other in terms of libel, the defamation bill. I put down so many amendments and I was uh, very professionally briefed um, uh, by Garrett Cooney, uh, who's the leading libel lawyer in the country, uh, and I, I just sabotaged it. And it, eventually, they had the government had to withdraw it. Uh-huh. And one of the editors, one of the editors, actually said to me, "This is payback time for what you did on the defamation bill." But that, he was also a homophobe, yeah. and there was a huge element of homophobia yeah. in that campaign. Okay. I mean. Um, that old bitch, Helen Lucy Burke, who went on the radio and was allowed to say uncorrected five times that I advocated parents having sex with their own children, all utter lies. And I, she had insisted on doing an interview with me in 2000. And I, I didn't want to do it. And eventually she promised that she would... Because uh, I said, you're just going to talk about sex all the time. Yeah. And she oh, no, she oh, no, 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 she wanted to give me an undertaking. Of the 20 questions, 19 were about sex. And I tried to take a libel action against her at that stage, but I couldn't get a barrister to take it because they all said, uh, mention of the word paedophilia and you're finished straight off. And I don't think there's anything that you're not allowed to talk about. You should be allowed to discuss everything. Um, and uh, I sued her in the aftermath of the presidential election. Of course, her lawyers had her declared mad. Uh, so she couldn't take part. Uh, but as part of the discovery process, I got the recordings of the original interview. And what she published in 2000 was a grotesque distortion of what I said and what is recorded on the tapes. Yeah. Just, just leading on from that, David, given your experience in the presidential election, in October there will be a referendum regarding the extending of voting rights in presidential elections to Irish citizens living outside the state. A few questions here, well, two, really. What's your thoughts on this? And secondly, do you think this will go in some way towards including Irish citizens in the North and perhaps an example of a step towards a truly shared Ireland? Oh, yeah, well, I would certainly extend it to people in the North. I mean, the Israelis have the biggest diaspora, or the the most known diaspora. They don't allow them to vote in in presidential elections or anything else. Yeah. uh, so I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned about it. It, it, it. it This is a diversionary tactic by the government. Um, because they don't want to face the real issues of the presidency, particularly the idea of allowing the people a proper role in the nomination of the president. Um, the people are not allowed to do anything in terms of the nomination of the president at all. It's the county councillors or the, or the Oroctus. Yeah. Okay. So it's an elite selected group of politicians who decide uh-huh. yeah and that's all wrong and when we had the uh, forum or whatever they called us you know that the, the, the met all all the people from around the country and whatever they called us um i put forward the, the government were hopping mad that i managed to get it onto the agenda but i did and i forced it on um uh, that the people be given a proper role yeah. in the nomination to the uh, uh, to the the race for the presidency. Uh-huh. Uh, 
98% of the people voted for it at that convention. 98%. The only people who voted against it were the people from the political parties, a tiny minority. Yeah. And one of them, Charlie Flanagan, was furious with me. And he said, you're only doing this to help yourself for the next election. I said, I'm not running. Yeah. But he wouldn't believe me. Yeah. I'm not running. I couldn't. Apart from anything else, I think I'd be too old. Uh, and on top of that, uh, the trauma of the presidential election uh, helped to give me a very serious cancer. Uh, and I had an enormous 11-hour operation for cancer. Uh, and that's not the stuffing out of me. Physically, I wouldn't be able for it. Of course. Well, you're looking very... You no, know, I'm grand. I'm, yeah. And mentally, I'm fine. Yeah. And you're but physically, you know, I don't have any energy. Yeah, yeah. So, so you do agree that it is a, a good step forward to open the, um, the voting rights up to all Irish citizens? Oh, yes. If you're a citizen... Yeah. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And certainly, I think it would be a good idea to, to bring in the North. Uh, in the Senate, we've always had representation from the North, yes. as long as I can remember. That's right. That's you right. know, we had John Robb. I've just led tributes to him last week. Mm. Uh, we had Gordon Wilson. Yes, correct. And now we have Ian Marshall. And they, they've, they've played a very significant role yeah. Yeah, in right. the Senate. Absolutely. Okay, we're nearly there, and time is against us, David. Um, a couple of quick last questions, just... What do you think is required to create a truly shared Ireland? Because I suppose that's what we are about. We, we here in shared Ireland realise that we all have differences, uh, but regardless of political thinking or religious background, we still have to share this Ireland oh, together. Absolutely. So what is your vision and what do we need to do to put in place... More democracy, that? by which I mean more participation okay. of the people in yes. all the processes... I mean, even apparently silly things, right? I don't think they're silly. The tidy towns, uh -huh. these sort of things. Um, we entered a national competition here on the street uh -huh. uh, and we won it. Okay. I forget what it was called, but it brings people together. It gets people talking. It gets people being neighbours. It gets people taking responsibility. If there are old people in the community or young people who are in trouble, you take responsibility for them. And that's a role... The, the churches in the past helped in. It gives them buy-in to their own community. Exactly, absolutely. Yeah. And to have a sense of community. I mean, we are a filthy race of people. Filthy, filthy, filthy. Um, and I look at the city of Dublin, the way people throw the rubbish right onto the street. I mean, some time ago, there was a girl of about 13 or 14, and she had a burger and chips. First she threw the burger onto the pavement, then she threw the box of chips and spread the chips all over the ground. And I said, you dreadful girl, what are you doing that for? Pick it up at once. Her mother turned on me, and all the people turned on me and abused me. Yeah. For telling a girl that it was disgraceful that what, what she did. Yeah. There seems to be no basic sense of right or wrong. There's no sense of ownership, yeah. of this is our city. Yeah. I mean, why would you destroy your own environment? You know, I don't understand it. It's because they feel alienated from it. They don't feel it's theirs, you know, but they need to. And that's why things like I started the Preservation Society here 40 years ago. <clears throat> and I think that's a positive thing. Yeah. You know, we get to know each other. We, we share each other's problems. I mean, in the early days, we were all under pressure from the banks, yeah. from the cost of restoring these houses. 
Um, but it gave us a feeling of solidarity. We weren't on our own. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I live on my own. And I was challenged the other day. I was on a television program and they were talking about loneliness. And they asked me, I said, well, I'm not lonely. I've never been lonely. Oh, the women said, oh, you have to be. You must be. I, well, I wasn't allowed not to be lonely, but I'm not lonely. Tell me this. But I think cooperation with your neighbours is very good. Yes. Just you mentioned you live on your own and being lonely. If someone came into your life now, could you share your life with them, given that you have lived on your own? Well, I expect it would be awkward enough, but I think I could, yes, why not? <laughs> by the way, that Especially is, if they were good in bed. By the way, that isn't an offer, by the way, I'm just looking you know. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> David, finally, we always like to finish off by asking the same question to all our guests. If you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? I think I'd invite the Dalai Lama. Very good choice. I'd invite James Joyce. Uh, obviously, a new Adam was coming. And I'd invite Marlene Dietrich. Right. Go back to the start. The Dalai Lama. Why? Well, I admire him enormously. I mean, I've visited him, spoken with him a number of occasions. And I remember when I came out of, of Tibet, um, I went to see him in Dharamsala. And he told me he was praying for the souls of the Chinese because of the damage they were doing to themselves spiritually. I thought it was a wonderfully generous thing. Uh, and he's marvellous, and he's so human. You know, I was at a thing with a couple of other people, uh, and he was giving us a little talk, and in the middle of it, he said, uh, now I forget what I'm saying. I'm very silly old man. I must ask Mr. Secretary what I'm saying next. No Irish politician would do that. They just bumble on talking nonsense yeah. until they caught the threat But, but I noticed you done it during this interview. You, you had the grace to say, Oh, I forget what we're talking about. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, I think it's a, well, maybe that's why I liked him, the Dalai Lama, because yeah. he's a bit like myself. And he has a wonderful chuckle. Yeah, he has. Uh, Correct. That's right. He's not 100% on, on gay rights yeah. by any means, you know, who says the most nonsensical thing. And I wrote to him um, uh, about it and uh, put him in his place and there was a kind of frozen silence for a year or two but he's back on track now okay um yeah and your second choice was uh, james joyce james joyce i think he'd be fun you know because uh he was so human if you read his correspondence it's not written with an eye on posterity it's not like you know maybe he thought he'd be published his letters would be published i don't know but uh, they're so immediate and direct Yes. Uh, and also, he was quite a connoisseur of food. You know, he knew what he oh, was doing. I mean, okay. he ate in Fouquet's, which is the restaurant in Paris. Right. Yeah. And he'd have very good wine if you were with Joyce, too. Yeah. And, of course, <laughs> lots of stories. I, I seen you smiling there when you mentioned the good wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I like wine, and I had a, I had a glass of wine uh, on the day that the marriage equality went through. But since the cancer, I'm not supposed to drink at all. Oh, okay, you know? okay. Yeah. And your third choice. You saw me decanting a bottle of whiskey over there. That's because somebody gave it. I did, I did a, a performance and they gave me a bottle of whiskey and, and two glasses. I did. When you opened that one, I came in. I didn't know what was ahead of us. Would you I, like a glass? No, definitely not. Not when I have to drive in. All right. <laughs> but thanks for the offer. And who was your third choice again, David? Marlene Dietrich. Ah, yes. And can you explain? Wonderful that? names. Right. Insured for a million. That was, that was a big publicity <laughs> thing. But she was a marvellous singer, you know. Uh, Vines, Lily Marlin, 
and falling in love with you, never wanted to. All this. And I saw her. Keep in, going, keep going. Well, I saw her in the Delphi <laughs> cinema. Uh, and she was, she was marvellous. I mean, and she was so anti-Nazi and all this. Uh, terrific, terrific. Uh, uh, and I, I saw the last interview that was done with her. And she wouldn't appear. It was in her flat. And you could see her shadow, but you couldn't see her at all. Okay, okay. Uh, she was in her 90s, yeah. Remarkable, remarkable woman. Great. David, on that note, time is against us. Um, let me thank you personally. And I'd also like to thank you on behalf of Shared Ireland and all our listeners for inviting us into your beautiful home today and giving up so much of your time. It's very much appreciated. And um, good luck in the future. You're looking remarkably well. And um, hopefully we will talk again in the future. I look forward to that. And thank you very much for the wonderful interview. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you very much. Stay tuned, folks, for um, other podcasts on their way. And if you do like this podcast, a retweet would be very much appreciated. Thank you. Bye-bye.